0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This episode is about China. We're here with Nick Lardy, who is the Anthony M. Solomon Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute, and also a colleague of Chad's. Nick is the author of a new book on China titled The State Strikes Back.
1: Nick is a longtime China watcher. His first visit to China was in 1978. But he's much more than that. He's one of these researchers who knows the Chinese data, both its strengths and its weaknesses, inside and out. He's also the author of half a dozen books on the Chinese economy.
0: Before we start, we are going to remind listeners of some basic China facts. Everyone knows that China is big, but it's really, really big.
1: For every one American, there are more than four Chinese people.
0: For every Brit, there are 21 Chinese people.
1: GDP per capita, or income per person, in the U.S. today, that's about $60,000 per year. In China, it's about $17,000 per year once you adjust for prices. By some measures, China's income per person today is about what Americans got in the early 1960s.
0: China is still growing. There are estimates that the Chinese economy grew at a rate of more than 6% in 2018. That's a third of global growth. The US economy last year grew relatively quickly, but it was only around 3%.
1: Now, Chinese growth of 6% is fast, but there were times when China was actually growing a lot faster. In the decade prior to the global financial crisis of 2008, the Chinese economy expanded on average by more than 10% per year.
0: Nick is here to talk to us about why China isn't growing faster today. There are hints of his answer in the titles of his books. Five years ago, he wrote Markets Over Mao. And his new book, The State Strikes Back, suggests that there may have been a change in his thinking. Nick, hello.
1: Hi. Having impressed listeners with just how massive China is, can we impress them even more by describing to them just how much it's changed over the last 40 years? Can you start by telling us what things were like in, say, 1978? Well, in 1978, when I first
2: went to China, in the capital of Beijing, there were a lot of horse-drawn and mule-drawn carts with peasants bringing vegetables into the city to sell. Almost no cars. And, of course, today when you go and you're driving down the street, you know, there's a Maserati on one side and a Ferrari on the other side, skyscrapers as far as the eye can see.
0: Was this a market economy?
2: In the late 70s, China was still basically a planned economy, and one of the best indicators of that is that almost all prices were set by the state. Uh, Retail prices were set by the state. All retail goods were sold in stores that were run and owned by the state. There was a teeny, teeny little portion of the agricultural economy where peasants were selling their goods to urban consumers, that amounted to about 5% of the sales of agricultural products. Virtually everything else had prices set by the state.
0: What about state-owned enterprises? How important were they?
2: State-owned enterprises dominated the economy. There were some collective firms which were not technically state-owned, but the vast majority of firms were state-owned, and almost all the output being produced in the industrial sector and even in most of the services was being produced by state companies that Chinese data actually say that at that time there were 100,000 workers in private firms. And that's, you know, 0.00 something percent of the
1: labor force. How were decisions about the allocation of jobs and investment made back then? The allocation of jobs was very simple. First of
2: all, anybody living in the countryside was permanently tied to the countryside. There was no possibility to to migrate. So if you were born a peasant, you would live as a peasant. If you were fortunate enough to be an urban resident, when you finished your education, whether it was primary school, secondary school, or whatever, you got assigned a job by the labor bureau, which was a state agency. And China basically at that time had lifetime employment. If you were assigned to a job, that was the job you were going to be working in for your whole life. There was very, very little labor mobility, even within the urban sector. Investment was overwhelmingly planned by and a very important agency at the, at the time, the State Planning Commission. They collected all of the profits of the state enterprises, and then reallocated them according to the investment priorities that were established in the plan. The banking system was not a significant source of capital for investment. The stock market was two decades away. The bond market was, you know, two and a half decades away. So it was a a very centralized system in which state agencies controlled most of the allocation of resources, investment resources, human resources.
0: Since then, obviously, things have changed. So if you go to China today, there are prices, as you said, there are Ferraris on the road. It certainly looks like there's a fairly vibrant private sector. So how important are state-owned enterprises in the Chinese economy today?
2: The private sector probably accounts for about 70% of total output today. So it's gone from practically nothing to 70%. So that leaves state companies you know, responsible for roughly the other third. They're very important in some sectors where they have significant power. For example, in what we call upstream oil and gas, there are three big state companies that control over 90% of oil and natural gas production. Obviously, state companies are very dominant in certain services, electric power generation and distribution, the rail system, the big airlines are... Almost all entirely—well, some of them are listed, but they're basically state-controlled because the state is the dominant shareholder. So it varies quite a bit by where you're looking in the economy. In manufacturing, private companies are very large. In the service sector, the state has reserved a lot of activity for state enterprises.
1: What about financial services and banking? Banking.
2: The financial system is very, very heavily state-dominated. The banks are overwhelmingly state-owned. Again, some of them are listed on the stock market, some in Hong Kong, some in the U.S., but the state owns most of the shares. So they're, they're the controlling shareholder. They appoint the top management of all of the banks. There's a party committee that plays an important role in those kinds of institutions. So they have some of the trappings of a modern corporation, but the state is the controlling shareholder.
0: And, and as we record this, I, I think it's the case that Visa and MasterCard are having some issues getting access to the Chinese market, so that there are also restrictions on foreign companies coming in and operating in, in that space, as well as there being a big state presence.
2: There have long been restrictions on the operation of foreign financial firms in China. Some have been allowed in, but usually as minority owners in, in a joint venture with a Chinese partner. That's beginning to change. There are now some independent Western mutual funds and asset managers operating in China. The Chinese did recently approve a joint venture in the payments space with the American company American Express. Visa and MasterCard would like to have 100% owned payment operations in China. They've applied for licenses. The Chinese say they will be forthcoming but they've been saying this for several years, so we'll have to wait and see.
0: How have the state-owned enterprises been contributing to Chinese growth? Are they are they important? Are they dragging it back?
2: Well, in the 90s, state-owned enterprises were a big drag on the economy. The premier at the time, Zhu Rongji, orchestrated a major overhaul of that sector. Some of the least efficient firms disappeared also increased competition by bringing China into the WTO, which meant foreign firms had more access, foreign goods could come in more freely. So there was a huge increase in competition. And in that period, you know, roughly, let's say from 2000 up to the time of the global financial crisis, the productivity of state-owned companies actually improved. And I think it was due to the increased competition in the market. Since the global financial crisis, that is since roughly 2008, The productivity of state companies has declined dramatically in the industrial sector the return on assets which is one measure of efficiency has declined by about two-thirds so there's a paradox the state companies represent a smaller share of output but there's still a big drag on growth if they were as efficient as private companies this economy would be growing significantly faster than we've seen in recent years. The productivity differential in the manufacturing sector, in the industrial sector, for example, is roughly three to one. That is, private companies are three times more
1: efficient than state companies. There's a big productivity difference between private and state-owned companies in China, but in terms of corporate governance and how these companies are set up, is there really a big difference? I think there is a very
2: substantial difference in governance between the state companies and the private companies. For state companies, the leadership, the top management, usually the top three positions, the CEO, the chairman of the board, the president, would be appointed by the organization department of the Chinese Communist Party. And they can put anyone they want to into these jobs. Frequently, they bring in people that have never worked in the industry. Sometimes that works out. Most frequently, it does not. Private companies, on the other hand, are very entrepreneurial. They're started by entrepreneurs. The entrepreneur runs the company. He hires the people that he thinks can do the best jobs uh, and is responsible for development of the company. As those private firms grow, they sometimes get listed on the stock exchange. They have to meet regulatory requirements just as they would have to in the United States or other uh, market economies. And more recently, uh, under Xi Jinping, who is the general secretary of the party, He is insisting that even private companies should have a party committee uh, that should have a role in the management decisions, big strategic decisions for the company. And so most private companies are now forced to have a party committee. It's not clear exactly how these party committees operate. This has been tried in the past, and... My view is it doesn't seem to have affected productivity. They still seem to be pursuing, you know, profit-maximizing strategies. They're far more profitable, far more productive than state companies. But certainly the state can intervene in these private companies whenever it wants to. And, you know, is this very different from the market economy in the West? You know, some of our tech companies are, are facing more regulation. People are concerned about privacy. So... When private companies get very big, they inevitably, I think, come under more scrutiny and more
1: regulation, particularly if they seem to have market power. Certainly one of the allegations from the outside in the West is that when you have Communist Party officials that are sitting on the boards of these companies, they're going to be more likely to implement directives from the state if if the Chinese government decides that it wants to pursue an industrial policy, if it wants to subsidize or to affect the behavior of one sector relative to another. What are your thoughts on that? I think the
2: state has a lot of tools to influence the behavior of private companies. They can offer incentives. They can be coercive. So I think the range of instruments is fairly broad. But after all is said and done, these private companies are three times more productive than state companies. So I still think there's a very fundamental difference between State controlled companies on the one hand and privately controlled companies on the other hand. I think one has to keep in mind that there are about 85 million members of the Chinese Communist Party in China, and virtually everybody in a top position in the government or in business is a member of the party. And one of the remarkable things was about 20 years ago, the then president. Of China and Party Secretary Jiang Zemin invited private entrepreneurs to become members of the party and this was revolutionary I mean the Chinese Communist Party supposedly represents the interests of the workers and here he was saying that capitalists entrepreneurs should become members of the party and a lot of them joined and some of them serve in the legislative body and other advisory bodies And they're very candid. They admit they're serving in these roles to try to serve the interests of their companies. They say, well, we can talk about new regulations that should be introduced that would be favorable to our businesses and so forth. So it's a complicated mix where the party is pervasive and membership in the party includes a lot of private entrepreneurs.
0: So each side is using the other.
2: There is an element in which that is true.
1: Nick? Thinking back to 2013, 2014, when you were finishing your Markets over Mao book, if there was a scale for China's economic prospects where one was really bearish and 10 was bullish, where were you at that time?
2: At that time in 2013, 2014, I was very bullish. The so-called third plenum of the 18th Party Congress, which met in November of 13, about a year after Xi Jinping became general secretary of the party, they passed a very wide ranging reform program, and many people thought it was the most aggressive reform program ever endorsed by the party. The document included the statement that the market must be the decisive force in the allocation of resources. That sentence had never, ever appeared in a party document. So the the presumption and certainly i thought at the time that xi jinping was going to build on the legacy of the market-oriented economy that had developed under previous leaders and this was the blueprint for doing it but within a couple of years it became very clear that that was not a high priority for xi jinping he was more interested in pursuing a big anti-corruption campaign which he used in part to deal with real corruption but in part to take down some of his potential political enemies And that led ultimately to the decision in the 19th Party Congress that they would eliminate the term, two-term limit on the positions of president and vice president. So that set up a situation in which Xi Jinping could be the ruler for longer than 10 years, even indefinitely, perhaps even for life, if he so chose and, and could generate the support.
0: Can we talk about China's growth slowdown and what you think were the main contributors to that?
2: Well, I think to answer that question, we have to look both at the medium term and the short run. I think in the medium term, the main reason growth is slowing down is that the productivity of state companies has declined substantially over recent years. Another contributor is that the share of investment being undertaken by more efficient private companies is going down. So that combination is putting a big drag on China's economic growth over the, over the last few years.
0: What about demographics? Are they responsible?
2: Demographics have begun to be a drag on China's growth, but it, and it will become a more impa- important factor in the future. The working-age population has begun to shrink very slowly, but that will accelerate as we move through the next decade. I'm a bit, though, uh, on the skeptical side that this will be a major source of decline The best estimates are that the growth of the labor force only accounted for about 10%, that is one-tenth of the growth that has occurred since the beginning of reform 40 years ago. Far more important has been the improvements in the quality of labor as reflected in huge increases in the level of educational attainment. This has added more to growth than just the raw expansion of the labor force. And the levels of educational attainment in China are still relatively low, there's room to move up. So I think demographics will be a negative factor, but it won't be overwhelmingly important.
1: So that's the medium term. But how about China's more short-run growth prospects of today? Do you think those are likely to be influenced by these trade frictions with the United States?
2: The trade friction with the United States is probably contributing to a bit of the slowdown. Exports of China in 2018 were reasonably strong, something in the neighborhood of 10%. But in the final months of the year, exports were actually shrinking. And it's a little bit uncertain what the trends will be as we move through 2019. But if the Trump administration follows through on its commitment to step up tariffs to higher levels, it will definitely have an adverse effect on China's economic growth. They can partially offset it through various
1: countermeasures, but they won't be able to completely offset it. Can we talk a little bit more about Chinese trade and the role that trade has played in contributing to Chinese growth. So let's start with Chinese exports and maybe the impact that it's had on on the Chinese economy and its growth over the last 15 years. Around the time of the, the financial crisis, you wrote in your book that continuing trade's outsized contribution to economic growth was not sustainable, either economically or politically. So what did you mean by that?
2: Well, at the time, China had a gigantic surplus in its trade with the rest of the world. And the reason it was not politically sustainable, ultimately, was that it did depend on an undervalued currency. The currency became increasingly undervalued in the years up to the global financial crisis of 2008. And that was creating a great deal of backlash, not just in the United States, but in other countries that felt China was manipulating the price of its currency. Economically, I believe also it was not sustainable because it led to a huge increase in the part of the economy that produced goods for exports. That's mostly the goods-producing sector. And what was happening in this period is that the service sector was stagnating because an undervalued currency implicitly acts as a tax on the service sector. So China had a this large contribution of trade led to a domestic distortion that was ultimately costly.
0: So the idea would be that with an undervalued currency, Essentially, what you're doing is you're making Chinese exports super competitive, and that's dragging resources into the, the tradable sector. All these producers start making stuff to export, and those resources could be in the services sector. Those people could be developing you know, better services, but they're not, and that's the distortion that we're talking about here.
2: Exactly. The undervalued currency basically is a tax on the service sector. It's a subsidy to the manufacturing sector. And so the share of investment going into manufacturing in the years prior to the global financial crisis was going up. The share of investment going into services was going down. It also had unfavorable effects on the domestic labor market because the service sector uses more labor per unit of output than the manufacturing sector. So even though the economy was growing very rapidly at that time up to the global financial crisis, job creation was actually significantly below potential. They've moved away from that now. The service sector has grown quite a bit since 2008. Indeed, it has become the major driver of China's economic growth.
0: Can we talk about some of the complaints that have arisen from the Trump administration but also from from others? And there, I, I suppose, the idea is that, effectively, the Chinese government has been subsidizing inputs for these manufacturing companies. Those companies have then been amassing huge capacity and then exporting to the rest of the world and not stopping when price signals, when prices have fallen and, and they ultimately really should have been not producing so much. And that has essentially hurt American companies, perhaps European companies, and everyone else is upset. Is that characterization fair? How much truth is there to that? Is is it very important?
2: Well, this is very difficult to judge. I think to begin with, we have to recognize That a little bit more than two-fifths of all Chinese companies lose money even after they receive some direct subsidies for various specific purposes but not related to exports. So these companies are kept afloat by borrowing more and more money from state banks. So this is potentially a significant distortion in global markets but it's difficult to measure the share of exports produced by state companies, which used to be overwhelmingly large in the last five or six years has declined to only 10%. So most of the exports are being produced by foreign companies or by indigenous private companies, neither of whom are the recipients of significant subsidies. So my view is that the subsidies for state companies are not good for the domestic economy and for China's economic growth but it's not clear that they're really a big distortion in in global markets. These companies are so inefficient that they're not globally competitive, even after they get direct subsidies and generous access to credit to cover their losses.
0: Let's return to this argument that you make in your book, which is that, that China moved in the wrong direction. It allowed the state to grow more dominant, these inefficient companies became more important, and that prevented the private sector from flourishing. What is Made in China 2025?
2: Made in China 2025 is the major headline industrial policy that China has been operating under in recent years. It sketches out a number of important sectors where China aims to become a really significant player globally. And the state is putting a lot of resources behind this. They've created a number of special investment funds for example they are subsidizing the development of the semiconductor industry which is one of the areas the most important areas where they would like to play a bigger role china is the biggest consumer of semiconductors but they're almost all imported given the huge amount of consumer electronic products that they produce not only for the domestic market but for exports they have to import a huge share of the semiconductors and they would like to be able to substitute domestic produced semiconductors in those products. So that's probably the component of the Made in China 2025
1: that's gotten the most attention. The China Made in 2025 industrial policy is clearly one of the things that the Trump administration is very, very concerned about. But in your view, is this Made in China 2025 actually good for China?
2: I think, honestly speaking, we don't know the answer to that question yet. I think There are two schools of thought. One is that this is a huge waste of resources, that they ought to let the market determine the pace of development of of these industries, rather than trying to create a kind of hothouse atmosphere in in which they might thrive. And there's plenty of evidence from other countries that have had industrial policies that they don't always work. They can lead to a significant waste of resources. So I I think the jury is out. In the case of semiconductors, the people that study the industry most closely say that so far... China's not closing the gap between the quality of products that are made internationally, particularly in in the U.S. and Japan, and those that are made in China. But maybe there'll be a big spurt and they'll start to catch up and it will look, you know, five years from now as if it was a great investment to try to accelerate the development of this industry. So as I say, I think the honest answer is we don't know for sure.
0: There have been these attempts to to this industrial policy, there have also been attempts to reform state-owned enterprises within China. Could you talk about those attempts at reform?
2: Well, China has been trying to reform its state-owned enterprises for decades, and they've had different approaches in, in different periods. This whole effort has waxed and waned. They're trying a number of things now, and I don't think any of them have improved the performance of state companies. For example, Xi Jinping has talked repeatedly about making state companies bigger, and there is a universe of big state companies that's under central administration that controls a lot of assets. And over the last 10 years, they have merged many of the firms in particular industries. The problem is that that has reduced competition, reduced the incentive for innovation, reduced the incentive to control costs. And the return on assets of this group of companies has gone from the neighborhood of 6 to 7% to around 2.5%. So as they've merge these into bigger and bigger conglomerates. There are only 98 of these companies, but they have about 25,000 subsidiary companies, so that they're massive, massive holding companies or conglomerates, and their productivity has declined dramatically. So I think this is the most obvious case of dramatic failure of industrial policy. This merger program has been very bad for China. So what
1: reforms should there be at these state-owned enterprises?
2: I think there are a number of reforms, and I think we have to start with the financial sector. I think firms that are consistently losing money should not be given continued access to larger and larger amounts of credit. So first of all, the banking system has to operate on a more commercial basis. Obviously, that implies the second thing, which is firms that consistently lose money should exit. They should be going into bankruptcy. Or they should be taken over by more productive firms that would see, okay, these underperforming firms have a lot of assets. I could buy them at a favorable price and use them more efficiently. But China doesn't have that kind of merger and acquisition activity. What they have in the merger area is these big top-down driven mergers of gigantic companies. They need some more bottom-up merger and acquisition activity so assets could get reallocated to firms that could use them. efficiently.
0: Last question. Why is reform so difficult?
2: Well, there are different theories about this. One is that, yes, there is an autocrat. He's consolidated power, but he's not as powerful as it appears. And there are a lot of vested interests that are not interested in the kind of reforms that are required. This would include local political leaders. There are a lot of local state companies that employ people. They don't want to lose those jobs. It would include some of the big state companies that are in, you know, they're in a very soft position. They're quasi-monopolies. They're they they they're not very efficient, but they do generate a lot of income, opportunities for corruption. Uh, so those kinds of vested interests are against these kinds of reforms. And maybe Xi Jinping just doesn't have the political power to push them through. A completely different theory is that Xi Jinping wants to maintain this big state sector, even if it's inefficient, because it's an element that he can use for political control. He believes that a big state sector is part of his program for maintaining party control. Remember, he has said the party must be control of everything, everywhere, all the time. And he has you know, beefed up the security apparatus, more control over the media and intellectuals, and more control over uh, state companies. So it's part of a bigger package of party control. So I don't know which of these theories is right. It, you know, it could be some of both. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Nick Lardy of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Be sure to read his new book, The State Strikes Back. As always, a big thank you to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio.
1: And make sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Chinese market-oriented reversals, two
2: would be better than one.